This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dan's Vintage says, isn't it true that collecting to build your PC based on what you love and let the chips fall as they may financially? So it's more of that that collector focused comment here. And listen, I think that that's the history of the, the hobby was built on collecting in the first place. It's not just about that anymore. Like we have to, all of us, you know, longtime collectors, we have, we just have to like, be aware of what the reality is today and for better for worse like it or not it's just what it is and there's a lot of people who are in this for the money they are into cards just for money and some of them are very vocal about it now and there's room for that i i think there's room for it i mean there's room for that for me i may i'm allowing for my experience i'm okay with there being room for that some people hate it and and I understand that too. We're all entitled to, to how we want this hobby to be. But at the end of the day, no one person is going to be able to control what the hobby is. So either embrace it or complain about it or just adapt and live, live within it. This isn't like this. I'm not saying this at Dan right now. I'm just saying it at the whole collecting versus investing kind of battle that we've had in this hobby now for quite some time. But again, he says, let the chips fall as they may financially. I don't know if I'm, if I'm collecting a card and I need to spend again, significant money on that card, I'm going to be, I'm personally, I'll admit it. I'm going to be concerned about what its future value is going to be because that money could have gone to bettering my family's life, you know? So that's where I fall. How about you, Tom? Anything to say about that? Yeah. I always think about the first thing a family member who doesn't collect when they see like my office set up, <laughs> like in the back, like the first thing they always ask is like, Ooh, how much is all this worth? Right. Yeah. Right. Like they, but they know like it's my hobby. It's, you know, it's collecting, but it's always like, you can't help it, you know, because they know that you didn't just find this stuff, you know, you put a financial investment into it and there's that opportunity cost, you know, right. you could have, could have gone on a vacation. <laughs> That's right. You, right. The other thing to consider is that 
you know, you can go out there and, and get some sort of money market type of investment, you know, put some money in a high interest savings account and get 5% or so. If you, you know, it depends what, I guess, depends who your financial advisor is, but you can get 5% right now on some money, even a bit more. Uh, by, by, by putting money into cardboard instead, and if you don't care about the value of your cardboard, is if you just write it off as an expense on your PL instead of putting it as an asset on your balance sheet, well, then that's fine. But can, the opportunity cost that Tom's speaking of is that, well, you know, you either could have done something else with it for whatever, for, for your family or whatever, or you could have invested it. And now it's costing you 5% to keep those cards or to buy the, the, the cost of those cards. Now is actually the cost of the card plus the 5% you could have got. Now, this is not very fun to talk about when it comes to a hobby. I don't, if I thought about like, if I, if that's how I thought all the time, I probably wouldn't be as passionate about collecting cards as I have been for the past 40 something years now. So I'm not advising anyone to think like that, but maybe some people who've come to the hobby recently with dollar signs in their eyes, that is how they're thinking because it's just the reality of the situation that if you're taking five grand, putting into a card, you're now costing yourself 5% on five grand a year compounding which is you know which is even a little bit more uh, a couple of random comments currency projects says i say i'd say vintage is pre-insert and pre-parallels that does tie into my thoughts so i like that one and i know there were inserts in the 60s and 70s too i don't think those are the ones that we're talking about um the professor says uh following up on my question all the transactions should be easily captured with more use of web crawlers at least card shop list or wholesale prices yeah, but I think the problem with list and wholesale prices is that, well, first of all, wholesale is wholesale, so that's a different category. We're not talking about wax here. At least in my mind, we're not talking about wax, Tom. We're talking about the single, single. The single card, not, not the unopened product. And so, you know, you can ask whatever you want on any website for anything. I don't think that's good data personally. Mr. LAGN said, it sounds like card ladder talking about the 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 private transaction data and i think card ladder is poised to be the best platform to offer this solution i think there's no one else doing it because they will take private transaction data but it's got to be so tough on them to be able to vet it and i know they have a process and they've got their list they've got their their criteria which is wonderful that they have a framework still got to be tough and unfortunately i just don't think they're getting and i don't know for sure so correct me if i'm wrong anyone from card ladder but I, I'm, I doubt that they're getting enough of that data to make it indicative of the overall private transaction world. Any thoughts on that, Tom? Yeah, I mean, you also open yourself up to like data liability, uh, tech mm -hmm. debt, just cleaning it up, right? The effort to put in. Uh, now there is at least another app that I know of, uh, who Get Collector, Collector, I think it's called. They also do private sales. They handle it in a different way. They also allow the user to, and this is going to be like everyone close their ears. <laughs> they let the user overwrite the market value. Hmm. If they don't agree with like what the app is tracking, what could go wrong, right? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. All right. We'll go through some more. Lots of stuff in the chat tonight, you guys. Basketball card guy, John says, I love nerding out on Tom's data. The more of this that becomes available, the more informed we can all be. It's definitely, it's definitely one thing to consider, right? I and Tom, I, I think I, I hope you'd agree with me that that you would I hope you wouldn't say to people, 
my data is all you need. I mean, you need to have your own insights, your own thoughts and opinions and preferences, of course, but it is definitely one more source of information if you want it to be to help you make some decisions if you are not just collecting based on pure passion and your favorite player if you, that's all you're doing you don't care what anyone else thinks so you don't care about charts or reports you're just collecting for fun and all the power to you anything else on anything on that tom yeah i mean my goal is to empower collectors right if you'll see on my website i made a shift to more of not really a self-service but it has that functionality so any of the models you can export the source data yourself do it in whatever whether it be excel or import it into one of the statistical softwares i mentioned earlier and really analyze and you know come to your own insights i'm definitely a lever that you know you can use you know, use my career experience, use my analysis, but it's still like, you don't need it, <laughs> right? Like it's nothing like, it's not mutually exclusive with buying a pack from a card shop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bob Boothel wants to know, can Tom confirm that he's not a time traveler masquerading as data? And I say data, data kind of interchangeably. Colin Murray, what's going on? Mark Santucci, yes, I will be having a Tim Hortons coffee tomorrow morning at the airport uh definitely michael says whenever a family member sees my card collection and asks what it's worth i always tell them less than what i have invested in money and time but more in satisfaction and love that's pretty cool i love that answer michael colin tells us that the 1979 opichi case selling tonight on heritage auctions is at 2.3 million still going colin if you wouldn't mind keep us posted on what's happening there, Terry Fortune says 2.76 million USD and rising. So it looks like there are bids coming in on that 79 Opeachy case with about 27.2 Wayne Gretzky rookies contained inside. <laughs> Bobby Burrell says opportunity is actually more important than price. I think what he's saying there is if we're talking about financial results, mm-hmm. ROI, it's you know, as a lot of people say in a lot of different industries, the money is made on the buy, not so much on the sell. I think that might be what he's saying here. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, you were nodding in agreement. Tom, what were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's usually a voiceover I give uh, whenever I go through the results of any of the forecasting, right? It's all about when you came in on the buy. You know, like a model could be showing you that, hey, this is going to be down 56%. Well, it's down from that starting point. But if you came in on a dip when the opportunity was there, you know, you're not down that percentage. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for thanks for that. Uh, the professor says, from a buyer's perspective, having wholesale pricing can be valuable, especially if the same card and same grade is several hundred dollars less expensive at a different online analysis. Simply speaking, I think what the professor is getting at is arbitrage. And there have been people playing the the multi-platform arbitrage game in this hobby for years. You know, it, and it's not it doesn't only go by platform, it goes by regions as well, right? Buy buy New York Knicks uh cheap in Miami and uh and take them back up and sell them in New York. I mean, people have been doing that, and that's that's what one of the roles of like the the mobile flipper in our hobby, right? They're doing all, they're doing the card show circuit. They're buying cards in California and selling them in Toronto or buying them 
where you know at any show anywhere buying them in dallas selling them at burbank vice versa and uh, there's all sorts of opportunities for arbitrage if you have the wherewithal to monitor all these sites uh you're going to be able to uh to make a bit of money in in simple arbitrage right is that does that come into play in your model in your predictive models at all tom like just regional premiums and that kind of thing yeah so that comes into play through the google trends right i can see the different search and interest by region uh i mean i definitely for sure see it in action like i saw it in action today at the the tampa bay show uh so yankees have spring training in tampa uh half of their unit is here i'm actually going to the yankees uh blue blue jays tomorrow uh, but so, but Yankees, what I'm getting by that sell regionally well here in Tampa because the spring, spring training team, you know, it's like another home base forum, but then there were cards that we were able to pick up that just regionally don't do well in this area, you know, or just dealers just know they can't move it. So they have it at a lower price and that's part of the joys of sports collecting. And it's something that has to be an input in models. So otherwise they're not usable. Or relevant and, uh, or just less relevant, I suppose too. Yeah. yeah. Monkey Mooney says thinking about the opportunity cost for any purchase or activity is a prudent move. Although it could drive you crazy that you, you might just, it just might, it just might make you not able to move you might make you frozen because you're going to be scared to spend anything because i can make more money on it elsewhere and there, there goes the joy of life there's some chat here i saw between zach and john the basketball card guy just about the the enjoyment of making those emotional purchases like exact that's what if there's no emotion in a purchase i've made a few card purchases because i thought you know this is a card that i want to invest in i don't get any enjoyment out of those cards and then i end up just Selling them sometimes for a loss because I was wrong, you know. But my my personal collection is I gotta say it's it's if I've got two thousand cards in my PC, I think one thousand nine hundred ninety eight of them are all emotional purchases because you know I just love the cards and I think a lot of you guys watching do as well. Uh, speaking of John, what I need is breakfast. Every time I see Tom's post, I've never desired pancakes covered in syrup so much in my lifetime. John, you're probably uh, triggering it for a lot of us. Dan, the card man has joined us. What's going on, Dan? Bobby says, from a collector's perspective, I meant the first opportunity to buy something will always outweigh the price you will pay. The money is always there, but opportunity is not. Yeah, and he's talking about rare items. Okay. The kind of items that you buy them when you see them. Let me ask you this then, to, to bring it back to what you do, Tom. Are your predictive models mostly dealing with the commodity type cards? Are they dealing with player indices or do they take into account that item that might only show up once a year if that yeah so currently it's just the indices uh those commodity cards i do have an outstanding request so this is we didn't plan this but uh, i did get a recent request from a high-end collector to see what i could develop for that type of market so where I'm a little apprehensive about it is because, and you've alluded to it, is where predictions, predictive models work really well for the generalist, right? 
it's not going to tell you that much or be useful for like when you get into specifics. Now, I think there's opportunity if you take more of like the financial pro forma output where it's like, okay, you have a model built in, but then you let user input drive it, right? Because when it comes to that rarity, that scarcity, those cards, the collector's always going to be smarter than any model that's produced. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. yeah. That makes that makes good sense to me. Okay. Here's a question that I don't know if I'll understand the answer. I'm not going to speak for the for the the chat, but let's put up again. The the professor is an AI professional. Uh you are a data analyst. So we'll ask the we'll ask the a high level question. How does the how does the variability fit in a model, if at all? I don't even understand the question completely. So please take it from here. Yeah. So uh it comes into play a lot. <laughs> and what I mean by that is so you'll see on my site delivered in one analysis, it'll cover eight different categories. But they're very different, very variable. And I am actually creating eight different models behind the scene. But to the user, it's like, oh, Tom updated it this month. And so what I mean by that is I have to fine-tune parameters, make sure I'm analyzing what's coming in, test and train. But, you know, there are different fit statistics behind the scenes that I'm able to play with that variability. But just be assured, you might have to do some digging in my site to go to the earlier ones. Because at first, like, I was just doing this for myself as the collector, and it was very technical, very specific. But it's all there about what variability I try to control for. <laughs> God, okay, so listen, the professor has now outdone himself with an even higher level question, which I'm going to bring up. Uh, before I do, a little sort of comedic interlude here. Al Terwell says when Hollywood makes Moneyball 2, the pancake analytics, will Tom's role be played by Brad Pitt or Jonah Hill? I'm going to go with Jonah Hill here, Tom. Uh, no offense, Brad Pitt's a handsome guy, but Jonah Hill's looking pretty good lately. He's he's gotten himself in shape. I'm going to go with Jonah Hill. All right, let's go to the professor's high-level question here. Technical question for Tom, he says, propensity modeling is a very broad term. Hey, learn something every day. Is Tom thinking of adding a layer of machine learning or probabilistic theory using Bayes' theorem? Now, Tom, if this answer is going to cause people to click off this, this show, please give us your quickest answer. Uh, if, yeah. this, if the answer is really interesting, explain the question and please then uh, give us your answer. Yeah. So really quick, uh, propensity where it gets confused and very broad and used everywhere is because you just think of the definition in, you know, language, layman's term, you know, propensity as like likelihood of something. Now, my scores on the website is the latter of this. So it's the Bayes theory, it's probabilities, to put it simple. So whenever you see a score, it's predicting likelihood. It's not a machine learning model behind the scenes. 
Okay. Thank you for that, yeah. Professor. I hope that is yeah. that he says, thank you, Tom. I will be, I will bring out the shovels and start digging tomorrow. <laughs> and if, if I know the professor at all, I think he will likely uh, be doing that. He is a, a, he is thirsty for information. I'll put it that way. Uh, he did clarify, how does grading variability play into the modeling? If you can speak to the grading variability a little bit, please. Uh, yeah. So I do have a couple of analysis where I deep dive into grading. Um, the indexes, like when I spot check them, there is different grading variability. So hopefully, you know, the models are smoothing it out and controls for that amongst other noise. Um, I know the indexes that I personally built myself with the card ladder team, like I saw through it through RFM segmentation making sure we got a good mix of that variability can't speak so much for ones that i didn't develop though <laughs> but 100 percent a factor yeah all right there you go vintage card collector lets us know the opichi 79 79 hockey case is now 3.12 million uh usd I, I will add in for the canadian contingent uh that is a lot of money we're now over 4 million canadian uh good luck uh, to the winner of that. That is going to be pretty cool. Mike Petty says, I need to add base theorem to my pancake. Bob Boozle's wife watches basketball wives. She can help with a baby mama patch for your variability index. You guys are talking just way above my level tonight. Uh, Dan's venture says, I can assure you that my family is doing fine and my card purchases are not affecting their quality of life. Uh, Dan, that is an amazing position to be in in life. Congratulations to you on your success. Okay, Tom, I'm going to go back to my notes for a second because I saw something that I don't want to make sure that we that we did talk about. Um, you had said to me the other day that one of the scariest things out there is being good at, enough at something, but not good enough to realize that you're wrong. What did you mean by that? I found that interesting. I want to make sure I understood it and share it with the audience. Yeah, so... Whew. So you can be educated, build models for a living. You know, there's a lot of open source data out there, a lot of research you can do. You can even grab code, copy and paste, grab the software, scrape the data. Okay, code will run without errors, right? You will get an output. You'll get fit statistics. If you don't know that your model's incorrect, you're going to run with that incorrect data. Or if you don't know, you're not covering for all those collector confounding factors. Like don't try to uh, predict average price sold of a card and you throw in total sales and total transactions. Like by definition, that's how you calculate <laughs> uh, average price. And then also just as a collector, like, when you want to make, if you do the investment side, like there's one clear example of where it was like knowing enough to be dangerous, but not knowing that you were wrong. And it comes to my mind, the infamous uh, Kyler Murray versus Will Greer. So that talking point came from a propensity model, not built by me. <laughs> but it was built by uh, 5830, that website through ESPN. And it was predicting 
NFL success by uh, yards per attempt. Now the football fan would realize that that's not an indicator of winning a Super Bowl, let alone like being valuable in trading cards. But you're looking at a table and the two players are right next to each other. So it's easy to make that, oh, I should go for the guy who's almost like the big name. <laughs> but it's just faulty logic. But faulty, you didn't yeah. know you were wrong. Right. And it seems to me like, you know, that's a, that that is symbolic of what, you know, of just a lot of the current culture today where we see a lot of claims being made. We see a lot. Uh, we see a lot of um, a lot of complaints. In, well, I'll speak about it within the hobby. We see a lot of complaints about certain things in the hobby, without a lot, with with a without the the the, the people making the claim, uh, really understanding the the whole landscape of the situation and ignoring certain things. So I think that's kind of what you're getting at. And to me, that's just. That's just the world today, so I'm not not too surprised by it. Bob Boozle, I feel like a hillbilly that walked into a cocktail reception. Where's the moon? Bob, I think, yeah, join the club, Bob. Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, the professor responds as Tom's use of the Bayes theorem is commendable. Thomas Bayes was an English statistician, philosopher, and Presbyterian minister, and his theorem was discovered after he passed away in 1761. The professor, he's thirsty for knowledge, but he loves to share it as well you know we've talked a lot about about what you do but i still feel like i don't know that we've gotten the message across clearly to the audience so if someone who hasn't yet leaves this show tonight that wasn't already checking out your models your predictive reports what are they going to find on your website and what are they going to find in the future that you're working on are they going to be able to go on to the Pancake Analytics website and get some ideas as to where the future of the sports card hobby value-wise is going to go. Yeah, so use my website. You're going to find searchable tools for collectors. Interactive. It's going to have predictions three months out for value of cards. You're going to have probabilities, assumptions, all based in data. Uh, I try to cover as many categories as I can. You know, even if I don't collect in it, remove all biases. And there's plenty of voiceover and write-ups. You're not just going to be looking at a table or a graph. There's going to be a human behind it. Uh, moving forward. There's a lot of questions. I just want to see if we can solve with data or at least get a better understanding. It's all about learning, growing. Uh, one thing that's in everyone's head, I'm sure, is do pop counts matter? <laughs> right now, my hypothesis is kind of weird. Yes and no. It, probably some cards out there that it doesn't matter for different genres. And, you know, let's build some models and prove it out. You know, another great thing, and I collaborate with other collectors with same financial mindsets, analytics mindsets, you know, AIGH sports, you know, he is finance 
him and I talk all the time and figuring out like, okay, can we test some of what he puts out there? You know, different, you know, index changes, different financial factors. There's models we can build and it just takes a community to do it. You know, so that's where it's earlier we were talking about. It's not Tom's way or the highway. <laughs> you know, let's put biases aside and just build for collectors. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think it's I think it's a it's a, a great mindset to apply to what you're doing. Now, here's another mindset I want to ask if you apply to it, and that is accountability. If you put out a, a predictive model that tells that that tells you and your your readers what what you what what you know what the prediction is going to be. 12, 24 months, 60 months down the road, do you ever go back and see just how accurate your models were? And then do you take that result to tweak your ongoing future models as well? Yeah, great question. So I hold myself highly accountable. Uh, I've already done it once and I plan to do it annually. So it's I do it in a uh, physical year-to-date report. Uh, covers like a snapshot of all the analysis, all the questions we solved for. And then it also evaluates the accuracy of my forecasts. So the first run of it, my forecast had an error rate of 12%. You know, that is good news statistics-wise. Good models are considered 20% and lower. Then 10% gets to excellent. So we were at about 12%, which is better than good, not quite excellent. And then I deep dive into each category that proved the model right, proved it wrong. In this case, it was a TCG category that made it, you know, rain cats and dogs. Everything's up and down. And then I break down what were the drivers, why did it do that, and then solutions around how to improve the models moving forward. So. A lot of it is, you know, these models give you upper, lower, and a forecast. This certain category, I stick to lower now until proven wrong. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Me, I'd sleep in for one extra hour, maybe even go for an early morning walk. I'd even consider a nap in the afternoon. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make that a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy in my lifetime. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and even just to vent about what's bothering me that week. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com SCL today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash S-C-L. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's important to, to check your work. You know, don't just put it out there and forget about it and hope for the best next time. You can learn. You can probably learn the most from your past versions uh, than you can from maybe most other things as you try to improve your accuracy. Right? I think. I think that's. Uh, 
and add more layers and more assumptions and more variables in, into your models. Uh, I want to say hi to Joe Perot checking in late. Might need some remedial help with these. I don't know how you say it. Do you want to say that word? Erudite? Erudity? I don't know. That word, reckonings, good stuff, guys. Joe and the vocabulary. Uh, vintage card collector. We're all enjoying the content and thoroughly confused at the same time. <laughs> right. Uh, fellow Fiebel, does Tom use GIS? It is great for metadata models and reports. Do you use GIS, Tom? Uh, no, I do not. But I will 100% research and consider it now. <laughs> uh, Mike Petty, funny comment. I'm going to need some glue for all these models I have to build, right? Very nice. Terry Fortune lets me know that the Battle of Alberta is heating up. 3-2 for my Calgary Flames, middle of the second period. But uh, still, a lot of game to go. Uh, the professor, has Tom thought about applying the base theorem to the Pareto principle? Are you familiar with the Pareto principle, Tom? Yes, yes. So um, you can do it. So I like having... Um, and this is just going to be for me and the professor here, <laughs> but have a uh, Bayes feed into the Patero. So Patero is, um, you make an Pareto. assumption. It's like, yeah, I'm not I'm going to mispronounce it, but hopefully I get the actual meaning uh, right. And he'll give me a thumbs, thumbs up, but it's, you know, 80, 20 assumptions. So you can have Bayes theory feed into it to reassure or change your um, ratio a little bit on it. Well, Bob Boozle says it, I think he says it very succinctly, connecting these principles will make the earth explode. <laughs> really, can't really disagree with that uh, observation right there. Okay, let's go to some other topics now. Uh, the first one I want to ask you about, and we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep attention to the chat, everybody, your comments, if there's anything coming back, but I wanted to switch gears. I asked Tom the other day, what are a few other you know, hobby issues that are on your mind? And one of them that he mentioned was the single licensee era and um you know your thoughts on that tom where we're at today and um do you think we have uh, it's a silly it's gonna sound like a silly question i'm just gonna ask it to get the conversation started here. do you think we have enough competition in the sports card hobby right now <laughs> i don't think i don't think so when you go down based off of licensees and like there's definitely enough manufacturers but what i'm concerned about is when it's single licensees and everyone stays in their own lane, you don't have competition, you're not driving creativity. And you kind of see it like, I guess the sentiment, at least mine is that a lot of sets are getting stale. Parallels are getting stale. You're starting to get all that manufactured scarcity. And, you know, the hits is all based on numbers. Uh, if you look at some of the stuff, and I'll say like upper deck, goes to their greatest hits all the time, you know, because it's the card they have to play at this point. You see a lot of great um, international sets out there, right? And then you're just like, oh, man, it would be great if, you know, everyone would share those licenses here too. You know, it's just you want options <laughs> as a collector. You know, you don't think about, like, just letting one control it you know it's you're a collector you're not a business i just am worried about you know lack of creativity and we're just getting repetitive and it's same old same old and we're dealing with contracts and it's not a good win 
in my eyes for collecting. You, you know, and listen, I, I'll never say that competition isn't good. Um, I, I, I'm not as harsh or critical of, you know, upper deck, for example, as some people are, that's fine. You know, I, I think, I think they put out a nice product. I, I like the cards. Um, but you mentioned that, you know, people like options. And then the, the immediate thought that came to my mind was we have more options now than we've ever had. Really. They're just all made by the same card company by sport. Yeah. You know, we don't have options for different card companies, but you know, basketball, I don't know. You've probably got 30, 40 different products, hockey, about the same baseball, football. We we've got tons of products coming out every year. There are some other unlicensed options out there as well. You know, leaf, wild card, etc. that do a nice job in the unlicensed world as well. So I think we do have options, but I hear you. If I, you know, do you think that we'd be in a much different place today right now in the hobby if we never had the single licensee uh, regime that we're in? I think we would. And it's kind of hard to tell um, if it would actually be for the better, right? I could see the argument for like, now you're flooding it <laughs> with everything. And where, where do I, where do I even start? It's already kind of hard when you're getting into the hobby and just the optionality of it. But, you know, I just want to see these manufacturers compete, <laughs> yeah. get yeah. creative for me. But this is me being selfish and biased, <laughs> not biased with data, biased with what I like. <laughs> Right. And I, listen, we, as yeah. you, as you should be, cause you, you and, and me and everyone else watching, we are all putting our money into this, into these items in, into these cards so we can own them. All we can really do is own them. You can't, there's no, not much more utility from a card besides that, that great feeling you get when you, when you buy it, when you receive it and all that, they don't do anything that we need as humans to survive except bring us joy and i don't want to under you know undervalue that I, I i see great value in that myself that's why i've been doing this my my whole life along with many of the rest of you uh laura says the opg auction down to the last 15 minutes please keep us posted on the final price of that skeppy has a question for you tom what error rate would you say your analysis was a fail meaning what standard do you put yourself at to remain valuable to the market so uh, each forecast, I try to strive for 10% or lower error rate. Uh, there has been a case, one case I went to market with higher than that, but I don't like to call it production unless it's less than 10%. And it's just because I knew for a fact market manipulation was happening. And I wanted to focus on future accuracy as opposed to like current accuracy when I was testing. And that one was, um, and everybody will probably agree and shake their heads. Yes, Marvel cards. <laughs> I needed to kick out a huge chunk. And the error rate was much higher than 10%, but long-term it ended up being right. It was gut feeling there. But yeah, usually I keep it to less than 10%. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Nice answer on that for Skeppy. Um, another topic that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and one that you found interesting currently is you have, you, you've, you have some thoughts around barriers to collecting. So please speak to that and uh, let everybody understand what you're thinking. Yeah. When I think of like barriers to collecting, it's like, I remember how, you know, when I got into it, 
And it was like family member brought me in with that pack. There's now, you know, it gets hard to collect as a casual just starting without having like so much knowledge already. Like you and I, Jeremy, we know like we put in some research. We got tons of online tools. Like we'll find what we want. But just imagine, you know, somebody going into a card shop and the card shop, you know, 80 some odd percent of their sales are on whatnot or online. So they're not focused on somebody who just walked into their own store. Uh, other barriers I like to think, and it might not really be considered a barrier, but like if you get into such a niche and now you have to start focusing more on like international cards, which might have a higher cost and might price you out a certain card. So it's not necessarily a barrier to collecting it, but it's just another hoop to jump over per se is what that's what keeps me up at night. <laughs> you also mentioned something to me about the life cycle of a collector. Uh, what, what are you thinking about when you think when you say that? Yeah, it's a life cycle of a collector, and that really comes from you know the day job. We always talk about like life cycle of consumers, card holders, and you kind of seen it happen like in real time, much quicker happening during the pandemic, right? The boom of cards, where it's like. People get excited about this. Ooh, I can do cards for a living. Or, ooh, I'm going to start flip, make money in the hobby I love. Then all of a sudden you become like hardcore collectors and your like behavior is shifting. I think it drives into my models a lot. And that's why the models are so predictive because people are coming in in their life cycles at different times. And as a collector, I hope that like, ooh, like, eventually the data would show like we're collecting smarter as a group, <laughs> but it's just people are going through different life cycles. So it's like always predicting the same. And with the accuracy, it's like, I want to be surprised, yeah. <laughs> but it's just life cycle journeys. How do, how do goats fit into all this for you? Yeah. For goats, uh, that is definitely, I would think, it's a life cycle. You know, like eventually, you know, like you could start off like, oh, I'm prospecting, I'm prospecting. And then you start realizing like, oh, I should have put more money into proven talent, you know, generational talents, more cards that I can move. And then you start realizing, you know what? I want to keep this. <laughs> you know, I want to have the Gretzky on the wall. Like, that is something cool. That's like a conversational piece. I, yeah, put it on the wall. <laughs> yeah. There, still getting used, used to that. Professor wants to know, is there a minimum number of data points that Tom needs in moving forward with a model? Well, this is some advanced stuff. Keep this answer quick, please, Tom. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for forecasting, I like to keep it to 24 data points. And I aggregate it up. So I'm not talking like I'm taking like 24 days, like it'll be either weeks, months, but 24 is where I can see like at least two seasonal periods for whichever one I'm modeling for. There you go, Professor. Bob Boozel, always, always the great questions and comments. Would Tom voluntarily put on an Elon Musk Neuralink brain chip in his head 
to 10x his processing power. I, it's actually a pretty legitimate question tonight, Tom. You're the only person I'd be comfortable asking this to without a smirk on my face. No smirk. Would you do it? If I could get guarantee my body could handle it. I mean, I'm scared, like, if anyone was to 10x. <laughs> what it would do. We're just not ready. The shell's not ready. <laughs> Let's go on to Jeff DeErico. Love this question. He says, would love to see what your collection slash investments look like with all the analytics. That's a great question. How has your, I'm going to use the, I'm going to use an investment term portfolio performed. And let me ask you this too, because you are taking such a financial look at the hobby. Do you consider your collection to be a PC collection? Do you consider it to be an investment portfolio or a bit of a hybrid? And then to, uh, to his question, yeah, how has it been doing? Yeah, it's for sure a hybrid. Um, it's mostly sealed. Like if you look at the, see in the background, my cases, they're mostly sealed cards. I have a lot of vintage singles as well. And it's what like, you know, the models will tell me, but it's also stuff I enjoy. Like the sealed when I was buying it up was, you know, PC, what I felt was cool. A lot of it was lining up with moments, whether it be in sports where it's like, Ooh, I knew like this moment is captured on a card. Let me get that. That'll be cool piece. Eventually some of them have picked up sooner. Some of them not. When it comes to non-sports, I know like a lot of like first appearances and cool items like that too, but it's, it's hard to make it an investment. Like, you you want to rip them? You want to open them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what do you? But then what are you collecting? Future moments in collecting, or the or the unopened boxes themselves? But hey, the the answer to that is whatever the heck you want it to be. You know, you don't have to answer to me. You can do whatever you want with your collection. But I do, you know, appreciate Jeff's asking and and just getting an idea for what your collection does does look like hobby champ says does the unpredictable nature of online influence disrupt the ability to properly analyze hobby data i gotta say i love this question by the way hobby champs thanks for asking it hadn't thought of this one can you address this tom yes um <laughs> can even ref can. refer to an article i did on my site a deep dive into steve aoki's influence uh very unpredictable and how he affects markets uh that model can be applied to any social influence but earlier i also mentioned i'm really incorporating those google trends now as well so i'm trying to get as much of quantified of the unquantifiable like i've used a uh, scrape twitter before for comic-con pieces that i do so i think that's also a viable option you know, you can make the unpredictable nature a little bit more predictable. Mm. Dan's Vintage says, a sealed collection is a joyless collection. I'm not sure how a box can speak to a collector like a Lou Gehrig Gaudi card. So I just, I, I, I want to respond to that a little bit, Tom, because I don't like, Dan, I, I appreciate that that's your approach and you would get no joy from it, but others do. I know for a fact others do myself included when it comes to my unopened pack of Opeachy run. Why? Because I remember going to the store and seeing those packs and opening them up many, many times. And I've got all those cards. I've had all those cards 
it's that pack brings me joy. Seeing that pack brings me joy. If you are a collector of unopened product, Tom, and you are you are buying what you used to buy 10, 20, 30 years ago and displaying it because that takes you back. That is nostalgia. Nostalgia comes in many forms, not only cards out of the pack. Nostalgia comes in other forms as well. Some people collect empty boxes of like the empty box doesn't even have the cards inside. I don't think that's joyless. I can respect that for Dan to you, it's joyless, but to project that out generally to the whole hobby, I, I got to push back on that, Dan. I think, I think you're out of line on that particular comment, but I do respect that to you, for you, you don't get, you wouldn't get joy from it, but I don't think you can fairly project that upon everybody else. Uh, you collect some unopened. Would you like to respond at all or share some thoughts on that, Tom? Yeah. I think there's some information I should disclose that would make Dan a little happier, hopefully. <laughs> so everything that I have sealed, like I buy two and I have opened <laughs> one. So I always open one, keep one sealed, you know, so I'm getting like that joy as well. But there are some boxes where like, man, the box art is great. <laughs> you know, uh, pack art is great as well. Sealed packs. Um, now what it will tend to do for me and where it kind of gets like single collecting, like there are some blasters retail that I consider buying because Aaron Rodgers is in a Jets jersey <laughs> on the box. Right. And like that might have like no value at all. But to me, it's like almost the equivalent of like, oh, here's his first Jets jersey card. <laughs> you know? It's funny you say that. You know, I used to take if I were to open a box, I would actually save the box. And then, you know, the you know how the way boxes are open sometimes they're like they're like punch out die cut. Yeah, you do like the, the display player. Yeah. I was going as far as cutting out the player from the box and putting them in an oversized top loader. And then literally only about two weeks ago, as I've recently moved, I've been going through all my crap, you know, and my and my good stuff too, but I've been going through all the stuff. It's like, do I really need this? You know, and then, and then the, the thought goes into my mind, will this ever be worth anything? I'm like, you know what? Even if it is, I don't care. I don't need it. I'm going to get rid of it and just like, like free myself of some of these things. But I was going as far as cutting the player's silhouette out of the cardboard display box. Never mind the, the whole box of the cards inside. It was just that. But hey, we're collectors. We want more representations of these things that we love in many cases. Most of us, some of us do. I won't say most. I won't project that way. Many of us do, I think. But um, yeah, interesting stuff. Fun, fun little chat. Dan, thanks for figuring that one off. Uh, vintage card lets us know strong prices for vintage high-end wax boxes on Heritage tonight. Bobby Burrell says propaganda is alive and well in the hobby. And the professor who dipped off of YouTube, went to watch us on X, formerly Twitter, says we had 40 viewers on Twitter. Thanks for letting us know that. Professor Michael says that it's the box, uh, the, the unopened case of Opeach is now 2.9 million into extended bidding time. Filmington is in the house. He says, with me, I don't get quite the same dopamine hit from sealed wax, but it's more subtle high without the hangover. <laughs> it seems like he's thought that out pretty well over time. Hobby Champ says, I'd argue the unknown nature of unknown of, of unopened product makes it pretty interesting. Yeah, there's definitely uh, an yeah. element of, 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 you know, just mystery with that as well. Mark Santu says, Jets fans would be interested. Stuk says, Unopened cello and rare packs with stars showing are pretty cool. That's another area within yeah. un, in collecting unopened 
packs for sure. And Bobby Burrell says, how does the algorithmic directive tie into your modeling? Oh, I think Bobby's trying to compete with a professor now to ask you the most highly technical question, but can you answer that one for Bobby, Tom? Uh, yeah. So, whew. like I try not to solely just... Keep, keep this quick. Keep this one. Quick. Yeah, yeah. You're like Tom. I can tell you're being long winded right now. Yeah, I, uh, I try to do like as little like machine learning driven into everything because I want it to be like more usable, right? But uh, I try to have it more like behavioral driven element into it. Like I have the final say on it is what I'm trying to get at. There you go. Okay, yeah. good. I like that. Keep it simple. Let's yeah. let me ask you uh, about this. Um, and this comes from the conversation we had earlier in the week. Uh, and I'm just going to kind of lob this up to you so you can speak to it. But you had mentioned uh, to me about the perceived focus on manufactured scarcity and the dollar value of parallels. And are we losing appreciation of base cards? Could this be leading to forgettable sets? That's what that was one of the things you mentioned you wouldn't mind talking about tonight. Can you uh, speak to that? We're down about 10 minutes. So let's uh, let's get through this one and maybe we'll start to yeah. wrap up. Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, it's like when you start thinking about all the numbered parallels, we're kind of not only devaluing base set collecting, but you're also the other end of the spectrum too. Like 101s are going to lose their luster, you know? Most several have yeah you're already seeing in play and it's just really worrisome you know like i would love to go back to the days of where like the hit was just the um unnumbered short print but like you knew it was a short print because you researched the set <laughs> exactly yeah but you know do you have like do you take issue with the amount of parallels that we're seeing right now do you like i you know it's kind of funny the way certain parallels become you know the the darling of the hobby and then they can they can change it can change over time it can change by sport by product and at at what point are these things just interchangeable and does it matter which one it is and are they all basically the same cards just with a different skin on them sort of thing how important is manufactured scarcity in your mind? Is a is a card where they everything looks the same except the parallel, the color of the background changes. How different are they really? And are we putting too much weight behind these things where you have you have the parallel, you got the one out of one, the one out of five, 10, 25, 50, 75, 100, 500, 1,000. You add all those up, you got about 1,500 or whatever that, that adds up to total cards. Is it just a, is it, what is that? What is that? And do you agree with it? And like, like, I love, I love some parallels. I like rare cards, manufactured rarity or, 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 or organics, you know, natural rarity from vintage stuff. I like it all. Where do you fall on that? And what I was just getting at. Yeah. I mean, I'll use a example from today that just like was a pet peeve or like got me riled at the show. And, you know, it was a dealer trying to move a card on me and they were, pointing out like look this is numbered out of 75 it's a pink parallel <laughs> like they didn't know who they were dealing with obviously but it's just like i don't know it grinded my gear because it just highlighted on to like oh it's the pink it's numbered to 75 there's probably a pink that's numbered to a different 
one. Like, this isn't really the case hit anymore. Like, ooh, do you have any of the number to 25s? Do you have it in green? And it's all the same image, but just different backgrounds. But what I do like about it would be for, like, casual new collectors. You know, you have more optionality chances of getting rare, in quotations, cards. Rare, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Foul Fiblast, any after-hours show tonight? It's been a while since I've had one. Not tonight, especially not tonight. I got to be up at I got to be up at four thirty tomorrow to catch an Uber to the airport for an early flight. So not tonight, Foul Fiblast. But yeah, we'll we'll be getting some more of those happening in the future. Uh, Mark, will I be on next Saturday or I'm on vacation? Yeah, I'm not certain I'm going to have a show next Saturday, as I mentioned at the opening of the show, everybody. Uh, but we will see what my accommodations are like and if it's going to make sense and if i'll be able to to do this and not keep the family and the kids awake i will try mark santucci gives the show a five out of five much appreciate that mark uh and uh, michael here says i'm over parallel one of ones i like true one of ones like a property of where there are no parallels of it that's a that's a good way to put up a a, a bit of a a boundary on what you're collecting. Like I'm always looking for ways to eliminate cards that I want because I want so many, right, Tom? Eh, I want so many. I don't have an unlimited bank account. So it's got to be, you know, like, like most of us, I, I probably most, if not all of us don't have that. So it's, it's almost like I like to find things that I don't want so that I can just focus on what I do. Okay. You're eliminated. I don't need to worry about you anymore. Actually today <laughs> I went through my eBay safe searches and I actually deleted I don't know how many I've got. I probably had 30 or 40 of them. I probably deleted about 12 of them today just because it's like, I haven't, I've been, I've been hitting that, that search every day, 10 times for the past several years, probably have never bought a card through that. Anyway, deleted them again, trying to focus. What do you think of all that, Tom? Yeah. Amazing about the eBay search. Cause like I got notifications today where I forgot I was even tracking it, <laughs> but yeah, I think, consolidation is key more than ever now especially the life cycle of collecting i'm in and you really just start to think about like okay what do i want to stay with me over the years what do i want to pass on to my kids (laughs) you know what are we going to enjoy yeah 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 uh mike petty says you need the gold parallelogram kabumi exquisite crest i Cracked ice aqua banger from a mega box way down townsies with a replaceable path and fake auto three logos. That pretty much covers the hobby of the last few years right there. 86 says, enjoy your vacation. You deserve it. My vote is no show. Thank you. 86 Robert Scott manufactured scarcity equals fool's gold. Then everything today is, is fool's gold. Cause it's all manufactured scarcity. It's all manufactured. We've been putting cards into top sleeves and top loaders right out of the pack for 20 years now. Uh, maybe more. So uh, the hobby is all fool's gold, according to Robert Scott's comment here, because it's all manufactured. And some of it isn't so scarce, but it's, you know, scarcer than grains of sand on, on planet Earth. So it's all manufactured scarcity. Therefore, it's all fool's gold. And that means Robert is calling us all fools. Robert, we're proud fools right here. We are proud fools. Uh, Bobby Burrell says, amazing how two similar cards on a sheet when cut into cards, one is worth 1500 and the other is worth $5. That and it speaks to Robert Scott's comment earlier <laughs> before about fool's gold. Like, what are we doing here? But at the end of the day, that's where the hobby is at. Now we are no longer in the 50s and 60s and 70s when 
people didn't buy cards to keep in great condition. Now it's all about that. And that's all because of money and value, guys. It's all with, that's what's driving it. So to everyone out there who says that they don't care if their cards go to zero, and listen, I'm not going to project on you, but I say, think think completely, think deep. Like, are you really, you're really okay if your collection goes down to zero? Now, maybe if you've only spent 500 bucks lifetime, you don't care. But if you spent what is significant in your world, I think you might care a little bit unless you're just totally wealthy as F. So yeah, there we go. Uh, thank you. Professor says great show. Mike Petty says bingo. Jer, thank you so much. Good night. Fellow fools says Mike Petty. Uh, Laura measured twice, cut once. And Bobby Burrell says ultimate question, Tom, will you leave your cards to your kids? Thus, are you that confident about the future of the hobby and of your work? Great question to end this off with. Thank you, Bobby. Over to you, Tom. Yes, yeah, confident in it, uh, collecting for my kids. They already know it's their collection. <laughs> like we have family visiting this weekend and they've been showing it off as like, come into the room, here's collection. <laughs> their cards. Their cards. Oh, right. That's that's hilarious. Yeah, they love it. And Don, Dan says, I definitely care if my cards go to zero, but that's not reality. I know that my cards will have value. I'm just not obsessed with the nickels and dimes of it. And I see that. I love that, Dan, because I think what you're saying is, and that's the same with me. I'm not watching the values of my cards on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't care. Like, I, I really don't. Like, I, I'm, I don't plan to sell them. What, you know, I've, I've had to sell cards recently, but I don't plan to sell my cards now for that 25 year horizon that I've always gone into it with. Now, circumstances could change. I don't know what the future holds. Maybe I'm going to be forced to sell some. You never know. But the plan is not to sell them. And I'm not sitting here watching the ups and downs of the, you know, the nickel dimes, I think is what, as how Dan is putting it here day to day and letting my emotions, uh, you know, be the result of these fluctuating values. Because if you see your cart, your, your collection go from, just use a big number, $100,000 down to 20,000, up to 80, down to 30, up to 150, down like that can just, that can wear on you. I'd rather not even watch it and just, you know, once it is time to sell, you know, when I'm really old, God willing, I get there or when my estate sells it. And after I'm gone, then I, then I care about the value. So anything you'd like to add to that, Tom? Same, same sentiment. Uh, and it's weird coming from, you know, the analytics guy who's just pitching like all the value he adds, but, you know, collector first, obviously, you know, don't think everything will go to zero, not thinking about value so much right now. Like if they're for my kids and any one of them, if they were to walk in right now, hopefully they're asleep, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they would say, Ooh, let's open it all. They don't see the value. You know, they see it as like, let's have fun with dad. Yeah. Stuke says, I have nothing into my cards. The hobby has paid for them all. So that's that concept of playing with house money. But however, that's when you have spent money on a card, that's money that you could have. We talked about the opportunity cost earlier. So while you're playing with house money, you could have that money in the bank instead, you know, just saying, but hey, I, you know, collect. It's what makes you happy. That's what makes me happy. I'm going to keep on doing it as well. Bobby says the possessional part of my collection is the value I see. And Michael says another great show on sports cards live. Thanks, Jeremy and Tom. Thank you to 
Michael, who was Linda's first. Appreciate you joining us as always. Laura, that we're at $3.48 million on the 79 Opichi wax <laughs> case. This is a case of 16 wax of 16 boxes of 48 wax packs. I think it's 748 <laughs> or so packs in there. Thanks for keeping us up to date on that, Laura. Tom, we are going to sign off. We're going to end this right away here. I want to take a moment and just say thank you for coming on and confusing the heck out of me and uh, a large component of the of the audience, I'm sure. But listen, I mean, uh, it was really interesting. And, uh, and I just want to thank you for coming on. So I'll give you a moment. I'll ask the chat, get any final comments you guys want here. Uh, but Tom, over to you before we sign off. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Great discussion, great conversation. Obviously, passionate about data, passionate about the hobby. Glad you didn't fall asleep. <laughs> That's always like the goal for me. It's like, okay, don't put people to sleep. But yeah, just everyone, you want to follow up, reach out to me on Instagram. DMs are always open. Pancake Analytics. There you have it, everybody. Thank you again, Tom. Thank you to Bobby. He says a great show. Stukes, thank you so much. Craig's Cards. Thank you very much. Chris Hoge from Card Ladder, co-founder of Card Ladder is here. He says, well done, fellas. Laura, thank you so much. And yes, next time we see Tom, Tom is buying the pancakes. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. As I've said, I'm on vacation tomorrow for 12 days. I'm going to, I'm taking this, the computer with me. We'll see if we can do some shows, but if not, we'll see you when I'm back. So have a great Sunday tomorrow, everybody, a great week ahead. And with that, this episode of Sports Cards Live with Tom Ferrara, Pancake Analytics here on February the 24th, 2024 is now over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.